week five of Rare Book School 2000. Our speaker this evening is Brett Charbonneau, who is systems, excuse me, who is uh, director of systems at the Williamsburg Regional Library down the river a piece. He is in the unusual position of having given this lecture here at this podium before. It's rare that we invite people to give the same lecture twice, but this is one I think you will find worth listening to either the first time or the second time, or for those who have really been around for a while, in fact, the third time. Brett Charbonneau. Thank you for coming. What does it mean to be a success? Webster says that it is achieving a favorable or desirable um, outcome. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> Which, if you knew that, you knew what success was. That was the second definition. The first definition wasn't any more helpful. It was the degree or measure of succeeding. In today's world of high-tech stocks, to be a success doesn't necessarily mean that your company produces something thoughtful or unique or even useful. It just means that you've made some money. Or if you read the papers, in many cases, an obscene amount of money. Now, the discussion of monstrous financial gain is, I think, a great segue into a discussion about bibliography. I mean, how many times have you gone to a party and overheard some bright, young graduate student talk about how they've been stolen away from some dot-com, his true interest, to dedicate his waking hours to the service of bibliography? <laughs> you know the kind. People who really couldn't care less about the implications of a particularly complex collation formula they write every day, they're only in bibliography for the money. Well, at least in terms that those who play with NASDAQ would understand, I am one of the lucky few who have actually been able to make bibliography my day job. For almost two years I did that nine to five. Does that make me a success? No. Does it make my work a success? No. In fact, my talk tonight isn't about my success. It isn't even about me. It's about you. It's about you and anyone who cares about books and who wants to learn more about them. It's about anyone who wants to solve mysteries, meet cool people, have adventure. In short, anyone who wants to have fun. But enough of the prologue stuff. Let me tell you not about what I did, but about what happened to me. Coming from a small town, in my case, Williamsburg, Virginia, just up the road a couple hours, as Terry says, I was, as a child, forced to entertain myself on summer vacations. I was fortunate that I lived across the street from the College of William and Mary because this allowed me the opportunity to seek refuge in their undergraduate library. I was originally drawn to the building because it was exquisitely air-conditioned and it was usually empty in the summer. But I soon discovered that in the stacks, one could commonly find books which were older than the college itself, which was founded in 1693. I would frequently check out these ancient texts, which were rarely printed in English, take them home and stare at them. The fact that they were over 300 years old and still in one piece when our newspaper didn't seem to last the week was amazing. So years later, when we had what do you want to be when you grow up day at school, my choice for an occupation was clear. While my friend Tommy expounded 
on the virtues of being a policeman. And Susie explained the wonders of being an astronaut. She was a very liberated seven-year-old, that Susie. When it was my turn, I stood up and said, when I grow up, I want to be a bibliographer. Now, there was a pregnant pause, and after I explained what it was that bibliographers did, my teacher questioned this choice. Now, Brett, where are you going to find an institution which will fund this sort of position? This had not occurred to me. I will have to find some independently wealthy benefactor that will have a keen interest in the history of book who will support my position, I suppose. My teacher looked at me, blinked, and said, okay. Now let's see what little Jimmy wants to do when he grows up. Now I have to be honest and say that I made this story up, but I wish it were true. To be born knowing that you're a bibliographer must be a noble thing. But in fact, I think very few people plan to contribute to the field of bibliography. It's something people turn to out of necessity or stumble across as a related interest. Many of you in the descriptive bibliography class this week are here to expand your base of knowledge for a different field, or you were steered into bibliography as a method of problem solving. Bibliographical work can be a means to an end, but there's definitely something to be said about bibliography for bibliography's sake. And from the work that I've done in bibliography, I've come to see that there are several rules about the science. Rule number one, bibliography is for geeks. Now, by geek, I don't mean someone who traditionally bites the head off chickens for entertainment, but someone who cannot stand questions that nobody knows the answers to. I have an acquaintance who works at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science named Mac, holds a PhD in geohydrology and local land use effects on groundwater, which in most circles would qualify him as a geek in and of itself. But as I was passing by his office one day, I found Mac was profoundly staring at the floor, which is not at all unusual for Mac. But he was staring at a pair of scissors that had fallen off his desk and landed point down in the cement floor and stayed that way. Now, most people would wonder what the chances of something like that happening really was. But Mac had to determine this to the eighth decimal place, a sort of quantified serendipity, as it were. And it's a shame Mac already has a field because he would make a great bibliographer. While reading menus at a recent restaurant of mine that I go to and frequent, I saw that one of my favorite sandwiches had been reduced to a beacon and cheese. Now, most people would think, okay, typo, no big deal, but a geek would look at that as a textual variant and run around the restaurant <laughs> collecting the other copies that have a corrected one to complete the set. Geeks look at the word exfoliate on skincare products, and you think it has something to do with collations and formats. Rule number two, bibliography is not for wimps. Like anything worthwhile, more time is spent looking than finding. It is the ultimate puzzle, which may always have missing pieces, but sometimes even the holes are rather pretty. Rule number three, contrary to popular belief, bibliography will not make you rich. Intense bibliographical study enables you to despise the wealth it prevents you from achieving. <laughs> Rule number four, bibliography will save the world. St. Peter, at the gates of heaven, does not quiz man on the true meaning of life or what it means to help your fellow man. He offers you collational puzzles. My vision is to be handed a mid-1830s Mexican octavo and half sheet. Collate this in three minutes. Begin. And just look at bibliography's potential effect on history yet undiscovered. 
there's a theory circulating now that the Chinese had time to build the Great Wall of China because Mongols printed the Barbarian Handbook with unsigned signatures, causing many miscollations. The famous Genghis Khan quote, I don't care what the manual says, it's rape, pillage, then burn. And of course, no discussion is complete without mentioning the Sinners Binders of 1642, which has the ultimate textual variance, losing the word not in the Seventh Commandment. Thou shalt commit adultery is kind of the ultimate textual variance. My involvement in bibliography was almost by accident, and it was certainly not by design. I was only trying to find some answers to seemingly simple questions. What I didn't expect was that the resources and members and network of this field to become the most valuable tools at my disposal. Let me describe a little bit about where I was when this happened to me, kind of set the scene for what drove me into the bibliographical wilderness. For over 12 years, I worked at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. If you haven't been there, it's a 360-acre site, sort of an 18th-century theme park with academic aspirations. One of the things that operates in there are 12 separate trades, and each one of these trades you can serve a six-year apprenticeship. I served a six-year apprenticeship in printing from 1988 to 1994, and I was taught by a master and two journeymen in hand-press printing using only 18th-century techniques and materials. We were operating in a reconstructed building that was known to have housed the businesses which employed printers and bookbinders, as well as the post office for the Commonwealth. I'm at a particular disadvantage now because we happen to have a journeyman bookbinder with us tonight, Jim Townsend, so now I have to act like I know what I'm talking about. The shop that I was working in, and Jim now works in now, is open to the public 365 days a year. Visitation average is about 200 people an hour this time of year. And at the time, we were operating three wooden common-style presses, one of which was about 220 years old at the time. Uh, Lucy was sort of the Australopithecus of common style presses and had the distinct uh, honor or onus, completely depending on how you look at it, of being the last apprentice to serve a full apprenticeship on that machine. It was retired as soon as I became a journeyman. The shop had five tons of type, its own type foundry. We used nothing but rag paper. Remember, there's no wood pulp paper until the 19th century. And we printed stuff. Our focus was pre-1781 Virginia imprints. That was our limit. And you picked 1781 and prior to that because the printers moved with the capital from Williamsburg to Richmond in 1780. The last book-length project we did when I was there was a third edition copy of John Tennant's Every Man His Own Doctor or The Poor Planter's Physician, which involved a total run of 130,000 impressions. The idea originally was to do 100,000 impressions, but we stored 30,000 sheets in a warehouse which was infested with rats, and they destroyed those 30,000 sheets, so we had to reprint those, which was a barrel elapsed. The output of the shop was sold to the public at large right on the site, is used within the foundation in appropriate settings, sold to movies, sold to museums, and the rare book community. The printing apprenticeship I served also required a requisite knowledge of and acceptable production capabilities in some of the other trades related to the book arts, including book binding, the sewing of sheets and books, and sewing them to supports for inboard bindings, cursory finish work, and by that I mean the tooling. My master never really could tell the difference with me between tooling and branding, which is not something I was really good at. Paper making, which included the accurate formation and finishing of usable printing sheets and some writing sheets. All apprentices also needed to have hands-on experience with type founding, 
punch cutting, matrix sinking, and justification, casting type by hand, some wood cutting, and ink making. This is where I came from. This is what I did for a living. It's what I wrote on my IRS form. Journeyman printer. The knowledge of that trade was applied directly to the interpretation of the trade to over 260,000 people a year. And for many of these people, that was the only exposure they were going to get to the hand press period printing and book binding in their entire life. And I felt I had an obligation to get it right. Part of getting it right is understanding how printing is accomplished during the hand press period. And for the period in general, that's really quite easy. From 1500 to 1810, the presses, type, paper, and techniques of the trade really didn't change. So sources can have a wide range of origin, not just 18th century. Over 35 heavily illustrated publications were produced prior to 1800 on the trade. Five of them are in English. The earliest is Joseph Moxon's Mechanic Exercises from 1683. And Joseph Moxon is the kind of person that can describe in depth detail the color of dust that gathers under each press. He describes the complete construction of ink balls, the position of the shop relative to the sun so that you get the best daylight for small types and the least daylight for smaller, bigger types that you can feel. And he suggests how to arrange the shop. And over 70 pre-1810 printing presses survive. So figuring out how printers did their thing in the 18th century or prior to that is really not a big deal. It's understanding how printers did their thing in Williamsburg that things start to become a challenge. Generally, research is done on specific trades, done in specific locations by studying archaeological artifacts or written records from the business. Archaeological digs of the printing office sites in Williamsburg yielded a disappointingly small number of artifacts. We found some printer's trash, parts of a washing trough, 80 ounces of type in a nice tight little circle right outside a window, which makes sorting type before you go home for the night a snap, <laughs> and pieces of a plate used to print money, five crown notes to be exact. We found some binding tools, and that was it. No other tools, no equipment, no supplies, not even a trace of printers that had ever even been there. Surviving archival records from these businesses are a little bit more revealing, but are frustratingly brief. There are two day books, and by day books I mean the daily exchanges of the business that survive. Both of them are located here at the University of Virginia. And they cover two years of operation each. They are not comprehensive. They don't list expenditures for wages. And not all incomes are listed. And they are both from the middle of the century, from 1750 to 1752 and 1764 to 1766. They represent a possible four out of 72 business years. So our slice of the century's pie is horribly thin when it comes to written records. And yet, the Williamsburg Press has produced a profound amount of material and North America's most wonderful superlatives. The first cookbook... The Complete Housewife or Accomplished Gentlewoman's Companion in 1742. The first North American book on printing, Typographia, an ode to printing in 1730. The first book on sporting events, The Complete System of Fencing or Art of Defense in 1734. And some of the best how-to books money could buy, John Wiley's Treatise on the Propagation of Sheep, which tells you how to raise sheep, how to feed sheep, how to shear sheep. We were shocked it didn't have recipes for mint jelly in it. William Burden's Gentleman's Pocket Farrier showing how to choose a good horse in 1738, a copy mentioned in a newspaper for which there was no known extant copy. 
And of course, the poor planner's physician, which we did before, which was one of the first English books to mention the disease diabetes by name. The 12 printing businesses in Waynesburg produced books over 500 different titles. Some on speculation, where you print a bunch of books and hope they sell, something like almanacs are a good bet, but most on subscription, copies of things that are actually sold before they're printed. You get enough people to sign up and pay for their copies, then you start printing the thing. A much wiser way to approach it. The shops did governmental work in a variety of formats. They did blank forms for the crown, commissions, appointments, court orders. They did slave bonds of ownership, court orders, subpoenas, warrants, bonds, other government work, small pamphlets, the speeches of the governor, small proceedings, ordinances, manuals, broadsides, money. They printed almanacs every year. They also printed a weekly newspaper, the Virginia Gazette, for the entire Commonwealth for a combined production period of 60 years. They did public blanks. George Washington had his lease forms printed in Williamsburg. George Washington was not about to drop a new contract every time he picked up a new tenant. He just filled out a form. Bonds, bills of exchange, indentures, tons of pamphlets, political, some sermons, and tons of ephemera. And by ephemera, I mean small almost insignificant sorts of thing. Today's ephemera might be TV guides or lottery tickets. They did broadsides for the continent's first theater in Williamsburg. They did blank forms. They did lottery tickets. They did book plates and all sorts of odd things that we just don't know about yet. However, you've got to keep in mind that the staggeringly few records and even fewer artifacts bear testimony to this work, and this has been the traditional way to document an early American activity. Written primary source documentation and archaeological artifacts. Unfortunately, there is an inverse relationship between what was thought to survive for the trade of printing in Williamsburg and the level of interest the visiting public had in printing. There's a great interest in printing among the American public today in its history. Partly because the printers of Williamsburg were so prolific, partly because the press is considered to be such a vital vehicle for the cause of the American Revolution. I mean, over 260 visitors a year can't be wrong. And they asked very straightforward questions. Where did Williamsburg's 18th century printers get their paper? How many people worked in the shop at one time? How many newspapers did they publish per week? Where did they get their ink? Where did they get their type? How much type did they have on time at one hand? At one hand? Why are you looking at me that way? <laughs> now you have to admit, these are pretty legitimate questions. And even though I could draw on over 30 years of in-house research on the trade in Williamsburg, I still could not answer these types of questions with any modicum of certainty. To make matters worse, after six years at looking to other secondary resource material, I still could not find useful answers. It only takes a few years of looking people in the face and going, you know, that's a good question. Let's look at this interesting thing over here. Before you start to wonder if the answers are out there, but no one had bothered to look for them yet. None of you who are old enough to remember, but there used to be a rock group called Yes in the 70s, and their lead singer, John Anderson, once said, writing songs is like catching birds in the dark. You can hear them singing above your head. All you have to do is reach out and grab them. Archaeological, archaeologically recovered artifacts are subjected to a scrutiny that really is stupefying if you stop to consider it. They are x-rayed, they are photographed, they are contemplated, they are written about, they are stored, and they are referred to. Anything that actually survives from a trade is really generally treated with a hostile indifference that kind of defies belief. 
During my attempts to find the answers to these nagging questions, I got tired of reading the justifications for not knowing the meat and potato details. I will now quote a few nameless studies. Quote, The work of studying each copy of an edition is tedious. Of course it's tedious. That's why it's called work. <laughs> quote, Little information can hope to be gained from the intense scrutiny of early American imprints. End quote. And yet by studying them for only two years we were able to increase the number of known 18th century Williamsburg imprints from 280 to over 900. Now, to be truthful, this approach of studying surviving products of a trade was probably not seriously considered before because so few products survive from most trades. There are 12 trade shops in Colonial Williamsburg, if you remember. The cabinet maker has 72 pieces of furniture that they know were made in Williamsburg in the 18th century. There's 300 pieces of Virginia 18th century furniture but 72 of them can be documented to the cabinet maker. In the foundry, there are 36 pieces that they know were made in Williamsburg. In the gunsmith, there are three, and they're all pocket pistols. No surviving artifacts make it into the century from the shoemaker, the harness maker, the milliner, the silversmith, the cooper, the wheelwright, the blacksmith, the carpenter, or wig maker, and this makes sense. People bought the stuff, they used it up, they threw it away, none of it survives. For in the printing office, we have about 12,000 surviving products, more than all the others combined multiplied by 100. It seemed to me that we had a mountain of evidence waiting to be tapped into, so I came up with a particularly obvious idea of looking at the imprints cohesively as evidence and to, the, for the first time, it seems, include the ephemera that we know made up most of their work. What I wanted to do was simple, to milk each copy of each imprint for all it was worth, to use the surviving imprints as evidence. I wanted to look at all the imprints, to study each possible aspect of them, and use them all collected in a centralized database to create a big picture that would help us to reconstruct approximate staff sizes, shop inventories, contacts with continental agents, and anything else that would help deepen our understanding of how these tradesmen practice their trade. My colleagues and constabulary were supportive, but wary. Don't reinvent the wheel. Surely somebody else has done this sort of work. You just need to find the right dissertation, and all will be revealed. Now, don't get me wrong. There was a lot of previously scholarly work done on printing in Williamsburg, and much of it was actually quite excellent. Susan Berg, uh, a previous librarian, enumerated all the Williamsburg imprints in a single book, but they're only books, things that were above four pages in length. So things like the, the nasty apprentice, me, wanted to ask, like, how many pages are in each book? Or if I go to the Library of Congress, how many will I see? Weren't answerable because she had to go through her three-by-five cards to collate all that stuff. The books from Williamsburg have also been contemplated by Lawrence Roth and John Hemphill and skirted by the History of the Book Project. They've also been pretty thoroughly investigated by Wilman Spawn in terms of decorative bindings. But these are books. None of them really addressed the attention to detail I wanted that was cohesive, and none of them included ephemera, the bulk of the printer's work. Just book-length imprints were considered. Mark Twain once said, all you need in this life is ignorance and confidence, and then success is sure. <laughs> so being confident in my ignorance, <laughs> I decided to go ahead and give this a try. So there I was, a million questions, no answers, and the only thing I could play detective with was several hundred, if not thousand books, 
and newspapers and God knows what else spread in libraries all over the United States. And I had no clue, no clue as how to play detective. And in my case, necessity was the mother of intervention. This is where you all are, even now, at a serious advantage over me. I had never heard of the field of bibliography, let alone knew what bibliographers did. I thought I was alone in a world plagued with some insatiable desire, a geek without a cause, as it were. So in an attempt to find a cause, I began to write letters. Lots of letters. I had an enumerative list of imprints from Susan Berg, so I wrote every institution which was known to hold any 18th century Williamsburg piece, and being able to send unlimited mail on an institutional budget helped a lot there. And I sent them a list of characteristics that I wanted to collect about each one. And most people did respond. About a third of the respondents applauded my efforts and offered helpful suggestions. Another third thought I had sent them a questionnaire for them to fill out, and one actually sent me a little postcard that just said, get lost. Another third thought I was certifiably insane to take on a project of such ambitious proportions and refused to comment further on my work until I told them how old I was, I, I guess to make sure I wouldn't die halfway through the project, <laughs> and more importantly, where my source of funding was going to come from. I think one of them was my teacher. Some, I think, assumed that I was already a bibliographer looking for a place to happen and referred me to articles in the library and the papers of the Geographical Society of America. Most of these I found really helpful, but I only thought they were spurious topics on the history of the book. Not knowing what bibliography was all about, I didn't think that the subject was the focus of the periodical. I thought the authors of the relevant articles were renegade librarians thinking out loud. But the authors were doing to their books what I wanted to do to mine. They were using the books as evidence. One of Murphy's laws states that to steal ideas from one person is plagiarism. To steal from many is research. Graduate students. So I decided to try and emulate some of these authors' techniques. I reworked my list of things to look for in an imprint and sent out a second generation to those librarians who were silly enough to respond positively the first time around. And then it happened. This letter came in and said, perhaps you should take a look at Philip Gaskell's work on bibliography. Now, three or four other letters mention this guy named Bowers, but gratefully I picked up Gaskell first because Bowers exhibited way too high a geek factor for me to deal with. I looked at principles and went, this looks like math. I better save this for later. Gaskell, on the other hand, was clearly speaking my language. The first few chapters summed up my apprenticeship. And for the first time in my life, he was right. No glaring errors about important details. The guy knew what he was talking about. I had clearly found out more about this bibliography thing, and I needed to find out even more. This was the winter of 1991. Just as I wrote back to the people who suggested, hey, get, take a look at Gaskell, thanking them for the experience, someone else wrote me and suggested that I contact this Bellinger guy in New York City, which I did. Now, Professor Bellinger, director of the Book Arts Press and Rare Book School, was one of the first academic people I had ever written to, so I made sure to run spell check twice before I put it in the mail. And he made some very insightful suggestions and informed me that he would actually be in Williamsburg the following summer for a convention of the American Typecasting Fellowship, Type Geeks, and could we talk then? Well, this was big stuff, my first bibliographical powwow, although I didn't know it then. And so there we were, meeting for lunch, Dr. Bellinger in a suit and tie, eating peanut soup, a new experience for him, and me, not unlike 
the grubby person brought in by the cat in my apprenticeship clothes and exceptionally inky apron because I had to sneak into the conference, talking to someone else about books, a new experience for me. And then it happened. Not unlike the ugly duckling, I discovered that I was a bibliographer and that there were others in the world like me who also looked at books for hours without ever reading them. (laughs) I was shocked and thrilled to discover that there was a veritable cornucopia of periodicals and larger works which would help me with my studies and that there were fellowships available to actually fund these types of studies. And that it was quite possibly true that no one had ever undertaken a study like the one I was proposing. And that if I pursued the idea, I would quickly become the world's leading scholar in colonial Virginia imprints, which may not sound like that much of a distinction, but when you're in your 20s and you come from Williamsburg, that's a great way to pick up chicks. (laughs) I'm happy to report that since this meeting, I've been lucky enough to start this thing called the Williamsburg Imprints Program. And although it's been out of sight these past three years while I've been doing this pesky making a living thing, It's soon to reappear as a searchable database at desbib.org. I've also been fortunate enough to secure enough fellowship money to support a total of 19 months of work on this program. And I've enjoyed the camaraderie and encouragement of scholars who lead their fields on an international scale. And I have to stop right now and say, before I go any further, that I am not a scholar. I don't write well. I don't split infinitives. I hack them in half. I don't have an undergraduate degree. I left William & Mary in my junior year to go become an apprentice at Colonial Williamsburg. And I am not widely published. And in my notes it says, see number one, I do not write well. And yet, everyone, with extremely rare exception, who I've come in contact with in this field, has been gracious to a fault, and many times at great personal expense, on every occasion I've ever had to meet with them. They've gone way out of their way to aid and abet my studies. They've been unbelievably tolerant of my ignorance, naivete, and inexperience with a world in which I'm an outsider, which is academia. I remember looking up Paul Mellon and seeing that he had some Williamsburg imprints, so I called information and said, Upperville, I'd like to speak to Paul Mellon. (laughs) These people also tried their very best to make sure that I felt encouraged at every bad turn or frustration and just generally inspired me to continue toiling at a job which they themselves have made sure is not thankless. I'm truly fortunate that they allow me to consider them colleagues. I'll give you some examples. I have on several occasions traveled to distant cities to meet with these colleagues, seeking aid in specific areas of my work with Williamsburg Imprints. Not only have these scholars unfailingly greeted me with open arms and cheerful salutations, not only have they shared their research and findings with me, that they have spent literally decades collecting, and I don't mean let me glance at their work, I mean given me copies of unpublished work. Not only have they endeavored to keep in touch with me by offering assistance of any kind by calling, writing, emailing, or personally visiting me, but they have frequently invited me into their own homes for days at a time, taken out from their time out from their own work to take me to collections, to show me only known extant copies of things which exemplify the sort of thing I should be looking for or staying away from, treated me to new life experiences ranging from live stadium baseball games to beer with alcoholic levels which defy belief to explanations of how many shillings exactly are in a guinea and why, and they have lovingly hassled me about why I haven't published anything in the last three years. I have never heard of another field where this sort of camaraderie exists. 
One of the guys I grew up with is now a physicist, and he doesn't talk to me about emailing Stephen Hawkins about this problem he's having with that cold fusion thing. Another is a software consultant, and I understand he's not getting faxes from Bill Gates to see how Windows 2000 is doing. Now, granted, it's a, this is a small pond that we're talking about bibliography, and the big fish may feel need to stay together just to survive, but there's no rule that says they have to be tolerant of the new kid on the block or that they have to share their research with another scholar. Regardless, the field of bibliography is ripe with opportunities. You can tell the pioneers from the arrows in their backs. Out here on the frontier, it's easy to be a squatter, and the neighbors are right friendly, too. So friendly, in fact, let me show you some of the things we've managed to cook up together and how this has helped us come up with some real answers to those pesky questions. I'm going to talk for a minute about your handouts, and then we're going to actually get into them. And we're going to jump around a little bit, so note that each handout has a little figure on it, which we're going to pay attention to here. I want to talk about paper first. I'll read you a quote from a Virginia Gazette. Quote, Our customers, it is hoped, will pardon the smallness of this newspaper, which is the largest we can procure, till the supply we daily expect comes into hand. Such is the day-to-day -day life of a printer. If you don't have paper, you can't get started. And that kind of re reference I just read you is the sort of vague thing that you see that refers to paper supplies that drove me crazy until I could start to figure out something about paper. Where did the paper come from? How did the supply dwindle during the Revolutionary War? Did they use lower quality paper for newspapers like today? I couldn't tell. The only reference to paper supplies for all 12 of Williamsburg printers has been found in the Virginia Gazette from 1775. Quote, as the printers are anxious to satisfy all demands against them and to purchase a stock of printing paper, which at this time is very scarce and cannot be had without cash, besides an infinite deal of trouble and expense importing it from Pennsylvania, they request those good customers who want to in arrears, blah, blah, blah. That's good, but it's not wholly enlightening. Did it come into Philadelphia from London and then come down to Williamsburg? Did they make it in Pennsylvania where they had tons of paper mills? Nobody knows. I needed to find a way to look at 18th century paper itself and try to glean as much information as possible. So one of the things I had to turn to was watermarks. Now, a watermark, if you're not familiar with the fun process, is kind of like a cold brand that's put in wet paper. The pulp for hand-pressed period paper is made by having water-powered machinery reduce, hopefully, white rags, literally, to pulp. You form a sheet of paper when you dip a wire screen mold into a solution of the water and the loose fiber, and that strains out a layer, which becomes a sheet of paper. If you take extra wire and you bend it in a little shape and you sew it to that frame, it's going to make the paper thinner there, and when you hold the paper up to the light, you can see it as a watermark. A watermark has the potential to tell you where the paper was made, its overall quality, and therefore about how much it costs originally, what size the original sheet has before it was folded into a book, which can indicate how wasteful printers were with margins, and give you an idea how big the press was, in short, many of the sort of things that I wanted to know about Williamsburg imprints. The best way to work with watermarks is to search for them in imprints that you are interested in and somehow manage to record them. Once you have an image of a watermark, you can begin to question it. Hopefully, you can find the watermark in a watermark catalog, which will hopefully have more specific information about the mill that produced the paper which produced that watermark. Or maybe you can show it to one of your friends, who's also a geek, who can say, I've seen that too. Let's look at figures one and two in your handouts. Watermarks are subtle, and working with them can be difficult. <clears throat> the first 
mark that you see there is from William Parks' mill, actually in Williamsburg, during the 18th century. And it's the seal of the colony of Virginia. Figure one shows the mark as it appears in a sheet of paper. So you hold it up to light. Figure two shows the mark as it was traced on a light table. Watermarks are difficult to describe. One of my predecessors got interested in watermarks in the 1960s. He called the Wisconsin Historical Society and asked them to page a book and hold it up to the light, hopefully that they would see this watermark. And he said, describe what you see to me. And the woman said, I see two men in their pajamas holding a basket of fish. (laughs) And one of them looks kind of like Charlie Brown. Oral description doesn't work with watermarks, mainly because I've never seen a watermark catalog that has a listing for pajamas. You need to have an accurate way to take that little snapshot, stick it in your little gunny sack, and take it home. What I use is a method that uh, a guy in Delaware named Thomas Gravel developed called a Dylux. That's D-Y-L-U-X. It's basically a photographic proofing paper that's used in printing. You just slip it Underneath the sheet of paper has the watermark you're interested in. You expose that photographic paper with fluorescent light through the sheet of paper that has the watermark in it. You take that sheet out and you ex- expose that then to black light and you get an image. It's real handy. It's also real cheap. Figure one is a dialux image after it's been filtered through a red filter. Make it a little sharper. If you look at figure five, that's what a dialux looks like just if you photocopy it. The problems with dialects is you got to have this special equipment. Rare book librarians love it when you roll up with all these fluorescent lights and plate glass and all this goofy paper. They just think that's the best thing in the world. Um, also, one of the big problems with dialects is the chances of you getting that watermark in a place where there isn't printing is really small. I got this particular one, figure five, out of an end sheet. So you're going to get the printed piece or the ink and the mark a lot of times. <clears throat> Excuse me. The alternative, of course, is to do what's called a beta radiograph, which is literally like x-raying the sheet of paper, which means you have to carry a radioactive source around. And if you think rare book librarians love it when you come in with fluorescent lights, they go nuts when you have a big suitcase that says, radioactive source, biohazard. <clears throat> so I didn't even think, I researched it. In fact, I talked to the man who uh, was the nuclear safety officer for Virginia. He had been that way for 35 years, and he was so old... He met Madame Curie. <laughs> he said a source would cost me $8,000, and I could not move it anywhere. And so dialects at 25 cents a sheet, that was my ticket. Let's go on to figures three and four. I can't believe I'm smart enough to have figured this out by myself. I'm sure I stole this idea from somebody else. But basically, these are images of watermarks that have been laid. What I do is I take a nice, good-sized sheet, and I got some safety glass with nice, smooth edges. You stick it in the book, and you lay tracing paper on top of it, and you get an artist's pencil with a big lead, and you just do a tracing. It works pretty good. It's a nice way to lift the watermark out of the paper, particularly if you do have something that, where the printing just obscures it so much. In a lot of cases, I'll do both. Because there are instances when I say, look at the watermark I found, and people have said, how do I know that watermark came out of that sheet of paper? There's no printing in it. Which is great when you produce the dialects and say, see? That's the nice thing about that. Now, in addition to watermarks, I'm also really interested in 
writing down all sorts of things and measurements about it. I'm really interested in the, the chain and laid line densities. If you look at the wires there, I measure them as a minimum and maximum figure over a centimeter. That's a real indication of quality. You got 22 laid lines to an inch, that's expensive paper. You can pretty much count on it. Uh, this is kind of mid-grade. I've seen stuff that's uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 12, which is really, really coarse. And for I measure all the thickness and all sorts of stuff. Basically, I'm, I'm recording 20 characteristics for every type of paper I see in each imprint. Let's move on to type. Type is the most expensive part of running a printing business. The number of fonts you have appearing in an imprint can tell you how big the shop inventory is, it can tell you a little bit about how successful a printer is. It can tell you what the printer's capable of. One of our printers was loyal to the king during the Revolutionary War and had 12 fonts in his shop at one time. The one who worked for the Americans had five. And we know that these two guys were actually partners before the war, and we wonder if some political disagreement caused them to dissolve the partnership, and if so, why the American guy got such a short stick, but we don't know about that. Identifying where a printer purchased his type can lead you to other information that you might otherwise not get. The printer you're interested in may not have any written records, but maybe the guy that sold him the type has written records that survive. That's something that's a little harder to achieve. If you look at figures six and seven, what we used to say about type was basically that the folks in Williamsburg used type made by William Caslin, a big London type founder, <clears throat> Excuse me, and Dutch type of an unknown origin. Now we know that there were 30 different fonts that had been used. They were produced by six founders in four different cities, and it's by using the handy-dandy Mylar overlay routine. And what you can do is overlay this sheet, the English Roman number one especially. We've got a copy of the Summary of the Rights of British America, and if you overlay something like the uppercase R, or the uppercase M, the Roman, you can see how similar these are. They're good examples. If you go to figure seven, which is a broadside, believe it or not, it's teeny, and you overlay one of the Roman R's, say with the Roman R in Williamsburg, or G, they're different. Overlaying types this small sometimes can get you into trouble, and it's helpful to just lay a letter right next to it, but if you A and B them, there's a difference there. And yet... Bear with me here. What a good crowd. If you take a look at the lowercase italic letters, they're identical. Look at the lowercase f. Lowercase f's and lowercase g's are great. There's only one g in the uh, mylar. <clears throat> it's the second from the bottom. Vigile? My Latin's terrible. But lowercase g's are super distinctive. So what's going on here? Brett, tell us it can't be so. The summary view uses type that was made by Alexander Wilson in Edinburgh. The broadside type below was made by John Bain in Glasgow. The mylar that you're looking at is a direct copy out of the American Antiquarian Society from the only surviving specimen book from him. The italic seems to be the same, but what's not commonly known is that Wilson and Bain were partners in Edinburgh and John Bain packed his bags and went to Glasgow and clearly took the italic font with him. This is kind of mind-blowing stuff, this and what you see in figure eight, because for years we believed that type could not be interchanged in the 18th century. Once you bought type from one guy, you're locked into his format. It's kind of like when you had an Apple a few years ago. You ran Apple software, that was it. You couldn't stick it in you know, a Windows machine. 
This is the sort of thing that really taught us a lot about what was going on. If you look at figure 8, the really, really big stuff, treatise and sphere, very different letter forms from what you see in the other lines. We know now that the type in lines 3 and lines 15, the sphere, were made by a Dutch founder by the name of Johannes Rolu. And it was a fact discovered by using mylar overlays. And they can work both ways. You can copy a specimen sheet and take it around, because that's known to things that are unknown. Or you can copy something you don't know and take it around to specimen sheets. You just got to have a lot of three-ring binders and a lot of patience. Now, what is our printer in 1730 in Williamsburg doing with Dutch types, particularly Dutch types from several different manufacturers? Well, the more you dig into this, the more you find that all these types came from a guy named John James in London, whose little hobby was going to London and buying matrices and molds. In 1710, in one trip, he bought 3,500 matrices and punches. And it's likely that all these letter forms were put in John James's basement, and he made all these things out of the same molds, which is what made them compatible. Now, if we go into figures 9 and 10, now there's, there's another mylar in there, and just uh, don't pay any attention to that right now. We just want to look at 9 and 10. These are pages from William Stith's History of the Discovery and Settlement of Virginia, printed in Williamsburg in 1747. Examine both seemingly identical pages by eye. This comparison is what I like to refer to as the Wimbledon method of collation, where you go back and forth to see what's going on. A lot of what you can do is start to look at the way lines begin and end. Line four is the first place that you start to see things ending. The spelling of beginning in the first line of the second paragraph in figure nine, which is what I thought was the way you spelled beginning, is different from what you see in figure 10. Now, we're going to get into the real, separate the real meat and potatoes here by taking the mylar of figure 9, and we want to overlay it over figure 9. Kind of get the hang of this. And, you know, if you're the kind of person that gets nauseous real easily, you might not want to try this. But it, they do line up perfectly if you spend enough time at it. You kind of get a feel for what it looks like. This is one-to-one. Now let's take the number 9 mylar off of number 9 and stick it on number 10. This is so weird. The lines begin and end the same in a lot of cases through the run. This is the way you see the book all the way through it, except for the table of contents and the appendices, which collate perfectly. And that makes a lot of sense, because usually the table of contents and the appendices are the last things you print. So what happened here? Did they print some and then get a lot more subscriptions and want to print more? Did they have some sort of rat-type disaster? It's hard to say. But something's definitely going on here with the history of Virginia. And the only way to discover it would be through collations. And in this case, the, the poor man's collator, which is your nice staples, you know, clear mylar sheet. <clears throat> Excuse me. The problem with the particular history of Virginia is there's no Virginia Gazette issues from that year. We don't know when the subscription was announced. We don't know when it was finished. There's no notice of something being destroyed or burning down. And so news of delayed copies just wouldn't survive for us. So now you can see why, I, why I'm so willing to become the poster child for bibliography. The stuff works. The printed matter itself can be used as evidence when studied with the right techniques. And it can tell you volumes. 
tough crowd. Boy, they're getting sour on me. (laughs) In situations where very little else survives, this might be all you have to go on. And this is why I heartily encourage any and all of you to pick an area of study and revel in it. There are plenty of areas to choose from. I remember telling my mom when I first got into bibliography that this field was 99% frontier. And she said, well, if that's true, at least your potential for serious mistakes is limited. And I think she was right. And this is what it means to me to be a success in bibliography. To simply do it all is to succeed. If you have, in any way, played in our reindeer games, your contribution is useful and should be encouraged. Even scholarship which leads to incorrect conclusions, of which I have made a lot, can make a good contribution. It gives those who know better something to shoot at. It gives something on the subject, something at least, out there. And Murphy, who once said, no one is listening until you make a mistake. To know the truth, one needs to know what the truth is not. In closing, I hope that you can see that bibliography can be an interesting and fun field to be involved in. There's clearly a lot to be learned from the small scraps of paper, now hundreds of years old. Some of you here tonight might want to get involved in the study of books as objects, and by all means, stake a claim on the grand frontier. And if you do, as a parting wish, I hope that those of you who choose to make a contribution in the field will, as Thomas More said, always walk through smiling rows of chubby duodecimos. Thank you. I should say that uh, during the reception there will be a demonstration of uh, a really nice portable collator of Carter Haley's own invention. So you'll be able to check it out and talk with the inventor and be amazed.